Thoughts. We're glad that you've decided to join us this morning. You're able to join us. And I want to dig into what we've started, which is the idea of being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. This series is called Further Up and Further In. And we're talking about being more than a spectator, more than a fan, more than just a follower of Jesus. Now, we should be followers of Jesus. We should be imitators of Christ. But uh, there's a word that's used throughout the scripture. It's very familiar to you. And it's the word disciple. And, 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 and those disciples that Jesus trained up became the leaders, became the ones that, that were the foundation of the church that he was building. But those, the word disciple doesn't just stop with them. In fact, Jesus' last command to them, one of his last commands to them, was that they would go into all the world and make disciples. He wasn't wanting the disciples to be a, a secret club, a, an inner circle that stops right there. But he wanted them to make disciples because that's what disciples do. Disciples make disciples. So I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I don't think God wants me to just be a fan, wants me to just be a spectator, wants me to just be an admirer of Christ. But he wants us to be true disciples. Here's the deal. When we talk about being a disciple of Jesus, it's different than being a disciple of anyone else. It's different than being a student or an apprentice of anyone else. Because when you're a disciple of Jesus, to merely imitate or copy him, you would never be able to do what he did. You would never be able to do what he commanded. But to really be a disciple of Jesus, you have to embrace the supernatural. You have to embrace this major truth that he has put his spirit in every believer, that he has breathed his life in you, that he has given his love to you, his word to you, his name. He's not just said, try to do what I do, try to do what I teach, but he's empowered you to do what you can never do on your own. Because the Bible continually says in the New Testament, now we are in Christ. We're different now. Everything we do, we do because we're connected to him. We are not trying to imitate his fruit. We are plugged into him. We are connected to him, abiding in his vine so that we can bear his fruit. This is what's so important. You can't do a thing apart from Jesus, but through him, everything's possible. So let's talk about that this morning. You know, through this series, you're going to learn a lot, hopefully, about the disciples that walk with Jesus because we're going to spend most of our time talking about the things he said to them during his time on earth. But I want you to see that as we do that, you're going to see a glimpse of yourself and you're going to see what God wants for you. He didn't just want it for them. He wants it for you. In the book of John, John chapter 13, we're nearing the end of Jesus's time on earth. This is his last meal with his disciples before he's arrested and then crucified. This is the most important meal in history that I can think of. This is it. This is the moment that he uh, passes the ministry to them. This is the moment that he prepares them for what's to come. But even no matter how many times he's told them this is coming, it hasn't really sunk in until tonight. At this night, Everything changes. He sent a couple of his disciples ahead and he said, go get the upper room. You're going to see a man walking with a pitcher. Go stop that man. It was cool how he set it all up. But when they find themselves in the now famous upper room, which so much of important church history happened in this place, they find themselves in the upper room and Jesus does something totally unexpected. Let's read this in John chapter 13. In John 13, as they, as they enter into the upper room, And they begin to get seated at the tables. It says this. 
Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. It doesn't mean he got completely naked, but he took off his outer garments. He took off the stuff that you wouldn't want to get dirty and he wrapped a towel around his waist. To us, that doesn't seem particularly significant, but to them it was. Because Jesus was now taking on the form, the image of a servant. In their culture, uh, you'd be walking around in sandals and hot, you know, sticky uh, Middle Eastern heat and your feet would stink. And, and uh, typically, if you were well off, or, you know, for even those that were kind of middle class, you'd have somebody in the house that would wash your feet. Maybe a special banquet like this, you, you would have staff in that upper room, but you'd have somebody that would wash your feet or you'd wash your own feet. But Jesus took on the form of that person at the bottom of the ladder that would wash everyone else's feet. That's not a job I particularly would want. I mean, even in Canada here, where we're not walking around barefoot in the, in the, in the hot heat, we don't have mud sticking to our feet most of the time. Um, you know, even in a place like this, at, where we're washing every day, hopefully, I still wouldn't want that job. This is not a pleasant job. And Jesus, I'm sure, has every eye on him as he girds himself with the towel. And then he poured water into the basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do now, what, what I do, you don't realize now, but you will understand after. And Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Peter is embarrassed for Jesus. He's, he's ashamed that Jesus would do this. Jesus is supposed to be on top. He's supposed to be the master. We should be doing this for you. You shouldn't be doing this for me. And Peter can't, Peter can't hold it in. He says, you know, you should never have to wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. If I don't wash you, you don't have any part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head, like get every part of me. But Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you're clean, but not all of you. For he knew that the one that was betraying him, for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he'd washed their feet and he'd taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? And I imagine they're sitting there going, I'm not sure what's supposed to happen next. I don't know what we're supposed to do. It's been really weird that our teacher, our master, the guy we've, we've come to understand as the son of God, the Messiah, he washed our stinky feet. Like he came and did it with his own hands. He, I mean, he embarrassed himself. He humbled himself. We don't know what to do with this information. Are we supposed to do something for him? Like, what are we supposed to do? And Jesus said, do you understand what I just did? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
He's discipling them in this moment. He's using the term teacher or rabbi. He's using the term that they would understand as disciples. It puts them in their place and puts him in his place, but he's totally switching the roles. See, in their culture, you did everything. You shared all good things with your teacher. You treated them with respect and with honor. Your rabbi, you, you honored this person, especially if you were disciples like these guys. This is the guy that you should be treating with the highest respect. And Jesus says, if I'm the teacher, if I'm Lord, and rightly so, if I do this for you, you've got to do this for each other. He says, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, literally in the original text, it says, amen, amen. This is a statement of great truth. He says, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. I don't speak to all of you. I know the ones that I've chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. In other words, I'm the one I said I was. I'm, I'm, the, I'm, I'm the Messiah as I've claimed to be. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me. This is such a powerful moment that Jesus is showing them something that, that, that they are not expecting. He's showing them something that is unlearning once again as he's done all these three years that he's been with them. He is causing them to unlearn what they've been taught all their lives and relearn the way of the kingdom. Jesus washes their smelly feet. Jesus humbles himself and lowers himself. And then he says, if you want to be part of me, you have to do this for each other. If you want to be my disciples, you've got to do this for each other. He shows them this is the way to follow me. And it's so interesting here when he says that, that you're not greater than the one who sent you. You're not greater than your master. But he says, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. You see, the blessing doesn't come from the great message, the great teaching, the great sermon, the great revelation. The blessing comes in doing it. He says, you guys, if you know it, the blessing is when you do it, when you give it, when you give yourself away, when you begin to lay your life down as I'm laying my life down for you. This has been a struggle for them. You know, I, I want you to remember who wrote this particular book. This book that we're reading is the book of John. It was written by John. John was the youngest of all the apostles, youngest of all the disciples. We, he's, he's right there at the beginning of the story. John and James are the son of a man named Zebedee. They've been fishermen all their life, trained up to be fishermen. But John is also classically understood, and we don't know this for sure, but he's, he's generally believed to be one of the disciples that followed John the Baptist around. He, he's known, him and his brother, they're known as the sons of thunder. They've got fire in their bellies. They sometimes seem like they've got an irrational temper. John is the one who's been in this ministry since Jesus started recruiting. And he's telling this story and, and we get the benefit of hindsight. You know, when he says at the beginning, Jesus knew that one of them was the one who was gonna betray him. He writes that knowing the end of the story. But at the time, Jesus is saying things like, 
The one who's about to dip his bread after me is the one who's going to lift his heel. He's, he's saying one of you is a devil. That's what he says. He says one of you is a betrayer. And can you imagine the emotion of the moment that John is realizing something's happening. This is the end he's kept talking about, but we weren't quite ready for. John himself has gone through a journey. You see, John and James were the brothers in Mark chapter 10. In fact, let me hold your place in John 13, and we're going to turn to Mark 10 for a minute. And I want to show you this conversation. When Jesus begins to tell them that his time is drawing near, that he's coming to the end of his ministry on earth, that he's going to leave, he says this in Mark chapter 10. It says, they were on the road. This is verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed at those that followed were fearful. And he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Imagine hearing that. You see, Jesus has, up to this point, he's talked about his death and resurrection. He's talked about what's going to happen. But this is probably the most graphic he's ever really gotten into the details. He's saying, this is what they're, they're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to whip me. They're going to kill me. And he says, he even tells them who's going to do it. He says, it's the, it's the religious leaders. They're going to do this. They're going to have the authority to do this. They're going to do it illegally, but the city's going to be behind them. This is going to happen, guys. And it's not going to happen in a year or two. It's happening at the end of this trip. We are going to Jerusalem, and this is what's going to happen when we get there. Immediately, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? Can you even imagine saying that to anyone you respect? Hey, boss, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Grant us this. Whatever we ask, you're going to do. Can you imagine having the guts, the, the chutzpah to, to say something like that? James and John just heard Jesus say, I'm going to die a horrible death. It's going to be slow. It's going to be painful. And it's going to be soon. And they say, we got a request of you. They, I mean, it's kind of like saying, you know, somebody saying, I'm about to die a horrible death. And you go, hey, can I have your car? Are you going to use that? Are you going to use that guitar? I mean, I, I, when you're gone, remember me. They come up and they say, you know, hey, uh, we, we want you to grant whatever we ask. And he says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit on your right and one on your left in your glory. I mean, in this moment of vulnerability, in this moment where Jesus is laying it all out, all they can think about is who gets to be in charge, who gets the best seats. Uh, we know he's coming into his kingdom. We know the end is coming near. So we, if we don't ask now, somebody else is going to ask. You know, if we don't ask, somebody else is going to butt in and take our place. We got to be the first ones to ask. They're calling shotgun on the kingdom of heaven. You know, this is them putting themselves in line for authority, putting themselves in line for the best seats. You see, in their culture, where you sat was hugely important. Like we sit, you know, we, we pull up at a restaurant with our friends. We sit anywhere. It doesn't matter who sits at the table. We might make a joke about who's sitting at the head of the table, but we don't really care. But in their culture, 
the one who sat right next to you, if you were a person of power, the person you put next to you, this was an important person. Even more, the person you put at your right and your left, that had significance. So here they're saying, we want to be those guys. Put us at the table. Put us right next to you. They are butting. I'm sure they elbowed their way to the front. Maybe they did it quietly so nobody else would get their idea. Like we, we, we thought of it before anyone else did. And, and shh, we, we got to keep it quiet because before these guys start asking the same question, can you imagine? Let's not forget these two brothers <laughs> who coincidentally church history. Now, we don't know this for a fact, but church history tells us that these two their mom was Mary's sister, that these are cousins of Jesus. Once again, it's not in scripture, so take it or leave it, but they seem to have, feel like they've got an important relationship with Jesus. It, it, you know, in another place, their mom comes and lobbies for them, but in, in, in this place, they're lobbying. It was them when Jesus was going through Samaria, a Samaritan village, and the Samaritan village heard that he was going to Jerusalem, and they said, well, you can't stay here. If you're gonna, if you're gonna hang out with the Jews, you can't stay here. And James and John were the ones that said, let's call down fire. Let's toast the village. They were advocating a total genocide. Like, let's wipe out a whole village because they wouldn't let you stay at their hotel. This, these guys, these guys, James and John. And here at the end of Jesus's life, he's saying, I'm going to die. It's going to be bad. It's going to be rough. Can we sit next to you and you enter your glory? Jesus says this. He says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be, ba or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, yeah, we're able. No, we can do it. We can totally do it. He said, the cup that I shall drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. He's saying, that's above my pay grade, guys. There's somebody else making that decision. Even Jesus in this moment says, that's up to the Father. And he says this, hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. The rest of the disciples hear this going on, and they're ticked off. These guys are pushing their way to the front again. These guys are trying to cram everybody else out, and, and they're upset. And calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. So the people that get in charge, the people that get in power, they use their power to keep power. They use their power to gain control. They use their power to dominate people. He says this, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He stops and he says, this isn't my way. This isn't the kingdom way. And I want you to hear this. He goes, it's not your way either. You are still thinking like people who don't know me. You are still thinking like people who are outside of my kingdom, who are outside of my covenant. He says, that's what the Gentiles do. What, these, these boys aren't Gentiles. They've been raised all their life as good Jewish kids. They, they, they might say, well, we're not Gentiles, but Jesus' point is not a point of what race you're from. He, his point is, 
People that are outside of covenant think that way. Outside of God, you have to look out for yourself. Outside of God, you've got to push your way to the top. Outside of your God, you've got to look out for number one. But those that follow Jesus, those that are part of his kingdom, the people that know who they are, the people that are part of God's family, he says, it's not this way among you. I want you to think about that for a minute. In our culture, even in Christianity, sometimes we say, well, we know that it would be good if good people had power. So in an effort to get that power quicker or, or do what the world's doing, but just do it for the right reasons, we try to use the world's methods to change the world. If we could just get our guy in power, if we could just get our person in, in this position, if we could just get control, we could tell people what to do. We could stop evil, but you couldn't. Because evil is not a matter of law. Good laws are good. Good government is good. We should stand up for that. But that's not where hearts are changed. Hearts aren't changed in government. Hearts are changed right here at the ground level. And Jesus is saying the Gentiles use their power to keep power and to gain power, to control, to exercise authority. But it's not that way with you. The one who wants to be great has got to be a servant to everyone. He's flipping everything upside down. And when he tells them, this is the way we've got to do it. This is, you got to, if you want to pardon me, you've got to wash each other's feet. It's a radical moment. They are seeing, they're going to be the leaders of the new church. They're going to be in charge. Like they are the, the those 12, well, those 11, besides Judas, those 11 are going to be the foundation of the new church. They're going to start something amazing Jesus, in, at this meal, is handing them the keys to the business, but he's telling them, this is how you're going to do it. This is everything you need to know. If you want to follow me, you've got to be a servant. If you want to be great, you've got to be a servant. If you want to have a part in me, you've got to wash each other's feet. You've got to humble yourself. You've got to serve one another. You've got to love one another. He's showing them the secret. He's showing them what hasn't really been a secret, but it is so often hidden from our eyes because we see how the world does it. How many times in 21st century North America do we do that? We, and I say North America, but if you're watching from another place in the world, you know it's everywhere. How many times are we so tempted to, to adopt the patterns of the world, to be, adopt the culture of the world and think that, that maybe if we just did it their way, but we did it for God, that it would all even out in the end, but it won't. See, followers of Jesus need to make up their minds that they are not just followers of Jesus in theology or in doctrine or in, or, or in belief. They've got to be followers in practice. We've got to be imitators of Christ. We've got to be the fruit. We've got to be the vine, or sorry, the branch attached to the vine. We have got to be his kids. What he's looking for is a group of people that reject Reject the world's tribalism. Reject the world's strife. Reject the world's way of using power and gaining power. And begin to say, we will be defined by our love. Jesus goes on in this story in John 13. He tells them somebody here is going to betray them. And the wheels begin to click. Because Jesus says that there's somebody here who's eating the bread right now. It's going to lift his heel against me. When Jesus said this, he became troubled in spirit. This is John 13, 21. And testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. 
The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, that's John, whom Jesus loved. I mean, Jesus took him under his wing. This is the youngest. He may be a firecracker. He may be, mis, uh, you know, sometimes a little misled. But this guy, I mean, Jesus took him in. He's the youngest. I'm going to take care of this kid. And, this, and John is just leaning up against Jesus. And Peter gestures to him and says, tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. He leaning back on Jesus' bosom. John said to him, Lord, who is it? I mean, it's so funny that Peter doesn't just ask Jesus. Peter says, you know, he likes you. Why don't you just ask him? And Jesus answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he said this to him. For they were, some of them were, were supposing, because Jesus had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we need for the feast or uh, give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. He's saying, this is the moment we've been building towards. This is everything. Right now, guys, it's happening. Maybe the wheels are starting to click. Now, it says the disciples didn't know why Judas left, but maybe for John, he's beginning to think, wait a second, Jesus just passed him the bread. Is he the one? And they begin to think back of the little weird things that Judas had said and done. The time that Judas criticized Mary for, for not, uh, uh, criticized this woman for not uh, spending that money that she spent on the perfume for Jesus, that she should have spent it on the poor because he knew, uh, it, it, Judas, Judas knew if, if this went into the poor box, if this went into the treasury that we're supposed to give money to the poor, he had access to it because he was stealing from the money box. All these little things begin to maybe click and, and, and John is realizing the end is here. This is all happening and Jesus at this moment says that now I'm glorified and I'll be glorified immediately. Then he says in verse 33, little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I'm going, you can't come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you will also love one another. By this, all men, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. This is my mark on you. Isn't it crazy that the way that the world is going to be able to identify the true disciples of Jesus aren't because of the, the building they go to on Sundays. It's not because of some fish on their car. It's not because of some claim to belief. It's not because of their name. It's not because of, of what they say or what they, they, they wear. It's because of their love for one another. I want you to consider something that sometimes it feels like being a disciple of Jesus is all about you and Jesus. And it is about you and Jesus. But consider this, that Jesus taught John something so important, taught everyone, all of these disciples, something so important that it, if you want to love Jesus, you've got to love one another. 
And when we talk about discipleship, so often it is about us hunkering down and getting into the things of God, getting into his word, getting into prayer, getting into relationship. Those are all huge. But you can't be a solo disciple of Jesus. It doesn't exist in the Bible. This person that just gets so close to God, they can't be around other people. That's not what Jesus taught us. In fact, he says, he doesn't say they'll know you're my disciples because you love me so much. He says they'll know you're mine because you love one another. He says, just as I have loved you, love one another. In the same way I've loved you. And think about the moment that he's leading towards. He's told them this is the end. I'm about to die. Saying, watch how I love you. See how I love you. I'm about to die to save you. I'm about to die in your place. He says in this same conversation, greater love. There's no greater love that anyone could have than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And he says, you're my friends. This is how I loved you. It wasn't just spending all that time with you. It wasn't just washing your feet. It wasn't just feeding you. It was what I'm about to do. I'm about to love you as much as you've ever been loved. I'm about to love you beyond what you can ever comprehend. I want to take you back for a minute to the beginning of this chapter. John wrote this many years after this happened, but he still remembered. And when he looked back, he said this, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In fact, John keeps talking about that. Many years later, when you read his, his letter in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the theme that keeps popping up is the love of God. The love of God towards us and the love of God through us. He says that if you have anyone that claims to know God but doesn't love his brother, they're a liar. He says the greatest proof that you know God is your love for each other. He says if, if we know God, we ought to, we, if we know him, we, we ought to act like him and walk after him. He's saying there's something that changed in us. You know, this, this conversation changed John so much. John, who was in competition with his brothers. John, who was in competition with the disciples. John, who wanted to call down fire on the people that didn't agree with him. John, who was the one who said, we, I, we made sure to forbid anyone. to ca They were casting out demons, but they weren't doing it in your name. Or they were using your name, but they're not one of us. We forbade them. We said, you can't cast out demons anymore. John, who was so full of jealousy and competition, was so changed by this meal, by the resurrection, that when he writes his letter, he just keeps saying, guys, I want to tell you something. The love of God is real. And it's not just God's love for you. you got to believe that love. He says, we have come to know and believe the love of God, which he has for us. He says, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice, as a propitiation for our sin. But that John, he uses the same phrases. You know, Jesus says right here, little children, little children, that's how he addresses them. It's only used one time in all the gospels and it's right here. And nowhere else in the New Testament is that word for little children used except in John's letters. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. In those letters, in, in 1 John, in, in five chapters, he uses that, that term, little children, seven times. 
becomes his new favorite way to talk to those that God has entrusted to him. John was changed by this meal. And John learned what it meant to be a disciple. The rest of the disciples did too. Discipleship is not about getting to the top. It's not about getting closer to Jesus than everyone else. It's about your love. It's about letting Jesus change you. It's about being of him and not just behind him, not just around him, but being of him, coming from him, that we are now in Christ. And I want to urge you today, it is getting easier and easier to separate, to disconnect. You see, as you decide to go deeper with Christ, there's a voice that comes that says, now you know more. You know, people don't take it as seriously as you do. You, you, you're a little bit more serious about this. There are times where it gets lonely to be all out for Jesus because you realize not everybody is willing to go as far. Not everybody has the same passion and the same heart. And you can do two things with that emotion. You can either say, you know, like the temptation is, well, I'm different. I'm the remnant. I'm all by myself. I'm one of the supers. But you know what? That's just a, a trap of the enemy to use your pride. To use your pride against you and against the body. But the closer you get to Jesus, yes, there's going to be times where you feel alone. But the closer you get to Jesus, the more you're going to love one another. The more you're going to love the people that God's put in your family. And the more you're going to have to make the effort to love. Because Jesus doesn't just say, feel love for one another. He says, love one another. And that word is a verb. In this tense, it's a verb. He says it many times. I am telling you to love. And I just want you to know that it's like starting a car. You know, learning how to drive. Maybe you learned how to drive. Uh, maybe you learned some of the initial uh, things from a book. Maybe when you were first being taught, you, you learned without even getting behind the wheel of the car. You learned some of the rules of the road. But there's something different when you turn on that ignition and there's power that you don't have. See, you can learn how to drive, but you can't supply the power. Jesus is the heart, he's the strength, he is the life. He has given you his spirit, that's the power. He has put his love in you, that's the power. And so when we say love, yes, it's you turning on the ignition, but it's him that's providing the engine. He is the core strength behind it. And so what you have to do is you have to engage. You have to choose. I'm gonna love. I'm gonna serve. How can I serve somebody today? The Bible says that the gifts that God gives us are a gift to the body, a gift to the church. And he says that we're supposed to use those gifts as each one has received a gift. Each one. As each one has received a gift, use it in serving one another in love. I want you to know that you have something that we need. We have something that, everyone, that the body of Christ needs. Let's never get to a place where we think our relationship with God puts us above someone else. Instead, let your relationship with God draw you closer to Him and draw you closer to one another. We are reaching a time where it is so important that the world sees Jesus. The world needs Jesus, so the world needs us. Because we are meant to be the light. We are meant to be Jesus in this world. We're meant to bring Him to the world. Jesus is not going to appear again He's not, I mean, until his second coming, he is not just going to keep showing up and saying, well, I don't need you guys. I'll just do it myself. No, he chose to show himself through us. 
And the greatest reflection, the greatest uh, portrait of Jesus, the greatest manifestation of Jesus in this world is the love of God working through us. If you, if you ever, ever said, I wish I could give Jesus a hug, find someone to hug. I, I wish I could send Jesus some money, send someone some money. I wish I could help Jesus move, help somebody move. If you want to love Jesus, love one another. And he says, this is my commandment to you. The greatest commandment he ever gave, that's it. Love God and love one another. This is discipleship. So what I'm about to say is the most important thing I've said all this sermon. I want you to hear it. Please don't check out. One, one of the most important things we can ever learn is that to be a disciple of Jesus is about lowering your walls, opening your life. To really be a disciple is really about letting your life be opened up. Opened up to Jesus. You know, these people had to leave what was familiar. They had to leave their jobs. They had to leave their families. They had to leave everything to follow Jesus. And he knew them and they knew him. They had to open up their life to Jesus, but it also meant opening their life to each other. You know, after Jesus was crucified, these disciples didn't know what to do or where to go, but they knew they needed to be together. And when Jesus spent all those the days with them, those weeks with them after his resurrection, and he left them, prepared them for Pentecost, he said, get together, wait in Jerusalem and, and stay together. And they stayed together in that same upper room. And later on, in, in, in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John are threatened with death and the church is under great stress and persecution, John and Peter go back to their own. They said they went back to their own, their own company, their own people. They went back to the disciples, not just the 12, but the whole body of Christ. They knew where to go when they were threatened. They knew where to go when they were afraid. They knew they needed each other. There's going to be forces that tempt you to draw away, that try to tear you apart from other people. There's hurts. There's, there's damage. We, we accidentally hurt each other and we purposely hurt each other. But God is the healer of broken hearts and broken souls and broken spirits. And I want you to know that you don't have to stay broken, that he wants to heal you so you can open your heart up again and say, I don't, it's not that I trust you, it's that I trust God. You can't keep living with a closed heart. You can't keep living with a closed life. Love one another. Serve one another and so prove to be my disciples. You can't be a disciple from a distance. It's going to take nearness to God and nearness to one another. So I urge you to be brave and trust God. Trust Him with your life. Trust Him with your heart. Trust Him with your dreams. Trust Him with your fears. Trust Him. Give Him your life, which is going to mean laying your life down for one another. Church, I love you. I learned a long time ago, you can't be in ministry and not open your heart to people. You can't minister to people with a closed heart. So I've opened my heart wide to you. And it's not because somehow I, I, I just have skated through life without ever being hurt. It's because we learn to trust God with our heart. And we learn that there's the only way to live and to follow Him is to open your heart and to love deeply. As Peter says, love each other fervently from the heart. For love covers a multitude of sins. It's going to cover a multitude of people who have damaged and hurt you. Love is going to make up the difference. A multitude of people that missed the mark and missed your expectations, love makes up the difference. I challenge you to go deeper with Christ. 
Go deeper in love.